Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. We're also on Facebook. Subscribe to our feeds for new episodes. Get them through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, tune in, or go right to nationalreview.com. Listen, leave reviews where possible, and help others find the program. We also ask for your help over at patreon.com slash political beats. Support us. Support the show. Help it stay ad-free as it is right now. We have entry-level support for uh, voting privileges, mid-level for early access and higher audio quality on the programs, and our upper-level bestest friends for early access, higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content episodes, remastered episodes, playlists, and much more. All of that over at patreon.com slash political beats we now come to the part of the program where we thank our patreon supporters specifically and individually for helping us keep the show on the air stay ad free thank you simon goldstone also anthony velasquez richard anderson chris coro brian roach susan b cj box a long time first time charles evans zach galleon and vin Thank all of you for supporting us over at patreon.com slash political beats. We could not do it without you. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I uh, could be better, Scott, to be honest with you. I, uh, I got a little bit enthusiastic last night and I, I opened my third eye here at home. Um, it's not going so well. Um, there's a lot of blood. I'm not going to lie. And you know what the worst part of all is? I'll tell you, the worst part of all is this one needs a contact lens prescription as well. Mm. Jeff is on Twitter at EsotericCD. And we welcome our guest on today's program. He is Chief Technology Officer at Tablet Magazine, co-host of the Ambitious Crossover Attempt podcast, and of all crossed out on the Call-In app, both of which deal with pop culture, media, and politics. All fun things. He is on Twitter, at Neon Taster. He is Noam Bloom. Noam, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Well, yes, for episode 120 or so, we finally got down to this part of the list. Uh, <laughs> Noam, first, uh, we give the floor to you. Tell people a little bit more about your podcast, about Tablet, about how you got there and how you became involved in the uh, political ecosystem. Well, uh, I mean, uh, I, I kind of come from a different kind of world. I, uh, I come from the music and kind of uh, production world, but uh, politics is sort of like my family business to, to, to kind of roll your eyes at a, a phrase. Uh, and uh, when I eventually life brought me to D.C., my Twitter, which was sort of political, kind of started to mesh with my professional life. And that's kind of how I got into that's how I met Jeff. Uh, and that's how I ended up at Tablet and in this kind of world of both sort of political, social tweeting and also uh, working. It's a weird um, space we live in, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and I also I think about the the people that we uh, would you know would have drinks with back in like 2017 and how few of those groups would tolerate each other at a bar table now five yeah. or six years later it's pretty strange to think well, about but this well, isn't that kind I of have, podcast but <laughs> that's why i have this show i mean that was the entire idea is that like eh, let's forget about all that and let's let's, <laughs> let's talk about you know 
let's talk about stink fists instead. Oh, yeah, exactly. Okay. And uh, and my and my podcast, the ambitious crossover attempt, uh, and also the uh, all crossed out, which is just like a live an additional live version of that show is about you know the the news of the day but we try to keep it interesting and fun and funny and also pepper in you know tv or movies whatever's going on just to keep it not super dreary <laughs> and uh noam is with us here today to talk about uh well tool tool a band with many fans we've had a few calls for tool episodes through the years on twitter and uh boy there's a lot of ways to come at this band and we'll cover as many as possible throughout the course of the show but uh noam back to you tell us uh, how you got into tool why you like them and why other people should care about this music we're about to talk about today okay so uh the story of how i got into tool is a little bit uh the story of how i became more of a general music fan uh and not just a proper metalhead uh we're talking about uh, early to mid-90s. I grew up in Israel, and not just in Israel, specifically in Jerusalem, which isn't, wasn't, it wasn't and isn't the sort of cultural hub of Israel. That is more sort of the Tel Aviv area. It's not the center of the universe in terms of, like, hot new musical trends. Right? Well, but also, like, <laughs> meaning if I the, – the, the thing I'm getting at here is that uh, for me to buy my first Tool album, I had to go drive to another city to buy it at, wow. a, like, a specialty music store. Um, but, uh, um, but I actually got into tool through the fact that, uh, in about 96 or 97 that thereabouts, I was a huge fan of, uh, creepy, interesting music videos. That was sort of the angle that brought me into tool because they're sort of famous for that as well. Uh, and staying up, uh, late at night watching alternative music blocks on like MTV two, mm -hmm. uh, which we would get in Israel and coming across, uh, the video for sober. being completely mind boggled and blown away by this bizarre uh hr giger ish stop motion nightmare kind of thing uh the music wasn't really what i was into at the time but then i went as i got more into them i discovered that m their newer materials which were brand new at that time uh were a lot more kind of in line with what i liked and that sort of snowballed from there now before I move on, you know, I'm going to talk to you guys about, I have a long, complex thesis about what, what tool, where tool stands <laughs> for me in this sort of, you know, the legendarium of music from this era. But what do you think, Noam? I mean, I mean, what, why are they the band that speaks to you? Uh, I think they've, uh, the beauty of tool is that they've always, or at least for the past, you know, 20 plus years have existed in essentially the same kind of state, right? 
they never and I don't to, I don't want to talk about this in sort of the cringe way, but like they didn't quote unquote commercialize and they didn't. They didn't. Uh, you spoke about Weezer on this podcast recently, right? <laughs> yes, There's yes, indeed. that was a memorable episode. Yeah, yeah. Tool, Tool is not going to be covering Africa by Toto anytime <laughs> soon, right? We're going to talk about the Tool cover later, but they only uh, did one, and it was a memorable one. Yeah, yeah. No, and so, and so, they they've always existed in this place where they didn't need big radio play. They didn't need tr- the traditional form of fame. They always existed on the backs of like a really dedicated fan base a devotion to their own style and authenticity. And the thing that drew me into them, it's somewhat of a complete experience, right? Art, music Uh as art. And here you have a, the visual component was always so integral, much more than I almost any other musical act that I can think of. And it it is expressed not only in their live show, but yeah, you're sitting down and you're looking at this, amazing artwork in an album as you're listening to the <laughs> psychedelic soundscapes uh and it does provide this sort of uh, multi-sensory experience i have i mean I, i'm sure scott when he goes last is is going to drop a giant bomb on the party here so so <laughs> bef- before we get there i'm going to try to explain a little bit about what what tool means to me or at least the way i think about them now this is a band that i was aware of i think say 96 97 now that was when anima came out but i probably didn't come to you know to know them until the era of 2002 when lateralists hit and then i was you know hanging out in the radiohead forums because remember i was that guy who was normally isolated from music you know during this era given my my classic rock proclivities i heard that music and i liked it actually and the reason i liked it is because i had been prepared for it if i had heard it at its time i'd never have gotten it i never i would have actually run screaming from it in fact because you know this was i was into you know like you know snappy brit pop you know like you know like really like clever little kinks like songs about village greens <laughs> and it's you know, like do you do you remember walter when you were starstruck and went off to become a star like that kind of stuff and now you know like if i'm listening to like stink fist or something like that that would not have been my mood in 1997 but in 2002 i had heard king crimson and that's important because King Crimson is probably Tool's greatest or most important, at least, sonic progenitor. King Crimson specifically during the 1972-74 era, from Lark's Tongues and Aspect through to Red. Uh, we did a show with Dave Weigel about them way back in the day. Gosh, three years ago now. It was a great episode, and I love that band so much. I actually think Crimson is the greatest, one of the two or three greatest live bands of all time. But that hard metallic and avant-garde approach is something that prepared me for what I guess is a, a genre that I'd really had no other entrance into up until that point. I'd liked punk and I'd liked speedcore and hardcore stuff like Oosker Do, um, you know, uh, Black Flag stuff like that from you know, the early '80s. But I really didn't have a lot of time for the metal stuff. I respected it. I knew my Metallica. You know, I'd grown up with Master of Puppets and stuff like that just in the household. But of course. They turned to, like, I guess, pop slop after the Black Album, so I wasn't really paying attention to their recent releases, and, and that made the genre even seem like that much more of a joke. So I never had clicked with it until I understood what it was they were doing. Tool was doing something different than what those other bands were doing.
taking a lot of the influences. By the way, you know, if you think Tool came out of nowhere and you think it's just King Crimson, then listen to some early Metallica albums. You know, listen to Slayer and Pantera, some of the more thrash stuff uh, that is messier and is not as precise and as tight. But those are the sounds, the guitar sounds, you know, you know that explain this band. Um, and I really love that. I really love their fusion of hardcore and you know, you know, heavy metal sounds with progressive styles and a willingness to experiment with different kind of solid sonic palettes. You'll notice, as I've talked about Tool here, I haven't said anything about Maynard James Keenan or his lyrics. Because that, of course, is a very divisive part of Tool and their music, their legacy. I have to tell you, I've never really been on board with this trip. I know there are many of our fans who grew up with this music and it helped them through their adolescence, the way like the people love Nine Inch Nails for similar reasons, the way that, frankly, I love Radiohead, okay? Radiohead was that band for me. Everyone's got to have one of those bands growing up, right? Something like that that they relate to. There's like, oh, man, Jeremy spoke in class today. Like, imagine the kids in 1992 who were thinking that. Oh, that would have been so cringe. But that, that, that void had been filled. For me, so when I came to Tool, I wasn't really into the lyrical trip of Maynard James Keenan. It's a very personal one. You know, he's trying to write these inspirational songs too at times, and he's exploring you know spiritualism and mysticism. You know, with his politics all folded in there. To me, it's just like interesting. It's window dressing. I love him as a singer. I think his voice is fantastic. I think it's one of the things that makes Tool stand out, just as a sonic proposition, that Maynard's voice can be that loud metal screech that you associate with, a, frankly, a bunch of other bands which were about to become really mainstream, unfortunately. But he's delicate as well. He's got a touch, a light musical touch with his voice. He isn't afraid to sound vulnerable and frail at times. He's got beauty in his voice, and I do appreciate that. And I really love the guitar work of Adam Jones. But before I stop rambling for a moment, I just got to say, this is like Danny Carey's band to me. <laughs> this is one of the best drumming bands that I've heard in the last 30 years. And if you're going to ask me one reason why I still jam to Tool all the time, it is just to hear his incredible drum work. Well, I mean, if you look at uh, if you look at uh, the place that each of those band members play in the world of people who practice that skill, right? Meaning, yeah. if you look how Maynard is seen by vocalists and how Adam Jones is seen by guitar players, Danny Carey, out of all of them, is someone that everybody who plays the drums knows. Danny Carey, like that's not even it's not it. it at like every guitar magazine. It's like you something know, that people make fun of, like, oh man, like you're not as good as Danny Carey. The way people used to like, you know, like, you know, go crazy over Neil Peart of Rush. It's the same kind of a thing. But he's just I can't I can't mock it, man. He's so good. And but you don't even need to be I watched a really cool video. There's these, you know, how they have those like uh, uh X reacts to Y kind of things. Right. Yeah. They yeah, had yeah. A, like, it for uh, the first time kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And so there was a there's a uh, a channel where they take like really good drummers and let oh, them Oh, I know this. I know this Noam. This is the one where there's they got like a, a Dennis soul. Chambers. They yes. got Dennis Chambers who's like one okay, of yeah, the greatest fusion drummers ever to 
and he knows who Danny Carey is, but he's never heard a, <laughs> he's, a, he's you never know, heard like one bar of Tool music ever. Um, and so, yeah, he's he's that, and I so I understand why you say that. Certainly, but, but, you, that video is great because you hear him like working his way through it, like on the fly, like he's yeah. never heard it before, and he's got to like come down with the track. And he's like, yeah, this is really good technically. This is not my style of music, and yet he's such a gifted drummer. He can still sort of like you know manage his way. It's a really Unbel- great video. Unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable, and uh, yeah, um, and and a thing you said about Maynard that I think is interesting to think about is that uh, I think people don't understand. This is something I learned when I was uh, studying production. I didn't learn like in a book. Learned through experience. Uh, uh, singing the vocals, the lyrics and the vocals, there's more to it than just the words you sing and whether or not you're on pitch. Because there are a lot of uh, uh, secondary uh, skills to it that I think Maynard excels in, for example, like meter and uh, and uh, finding things that sort of sound good lyrically. You know, um, uh, the Mars Volta uh, and also uh, Sigur Rost, two examples mm-hmm. of bands that have Sig- songs that are in gibberish. Yeah, right? Sigur Rost literally sings in a, a made, for those who don't know, they sing in a made-up language called Hopelandic instead of Icelandic. It's weird, but it kind of works. Yeah, it's about creating something abstract. And yeah, Cedric, uh, uh, the singer of uh, Mars Volta, has occasionally made up words peppered in. If you uh, listen to the Mars Volta song, Televators, most of the lyrics there are sort of made up portmanteau words that are just meant to make you feel a thing. Right. And so and so that's not he's not a that's not a, you can't say like the lyrics of it are good. They're evocative, but they don't really mean anything. Which is interesting, and so he's uh, good. I mean, is, by the way, there, there, this is nothing new. John Anderson of Yes, another band everyone makes fun of for having like ridiculous lyrics. They, and by the way, John Anderson's lyrics are far worse than Maynard's. Maynard's <laughs> lyrics are all very like thought out and sincere. They're very coherent. You know, they're actually very intelligent. But uh, John Anderson's babbling nonsense about witches and livers, um, and his point <laughs> is like it's just supposed to be almost like a vocal accompaniment to the music. Think of it as another instrument in the mix. And when you think of a voice as an instrument in an ensemble and, and not just singing its own words, then it takes on a secondary meaning in a band. And I think that also explains why uh, Keenan made it a point to not actually put the lyrics to any of these albums on the actual albums, hmm. just all artwork instead. You got to go, like, I think he, I, I just only found this out by researching. He looked it up and he's like, apparently, did you just print it online later? You go find it. Uh, because he's like, most people aren't going to get it anyway. Which well, I, I also I owned I used to own all of the special edition releases of the Tool albums until my mom threw them out once. <laughs> Thanks, mom. Uh, but like they all your baseball cards, right? Yeah. And so I can go I can go down the line and 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 tell you what it was. So the the Anima one, uh, the Undertow one, did not have like something super spectacular to it. But starting with Anima, that one had like a lenticular cover, so that when you like you know those things that are printed Utility, where. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah, you kind of yeah. tilt it left and right, and it showed like a kind of a burning flame thing. The lateralis one was a series. The booklet was a series of transparencies that each had like a uh, like a layer of like the human body, and you would like peel it away to reveal like yeah. the meridians and the chakras underneath. Then uh, Ten Thousand Days had a like a viewmaster kind of thing where you would you would kind of prop it up with like these two lenses and a piece of Alex Gray's psychedelic art that you kind of look through. And Fear Inoculum, the current one, I'm looking at it right now. They they shipped it with a there's a little video player inside the <laughs> CD box that plays this weird animation, psychedelic animation and music like on a loop. I had no idea. That's really bespoke. That, I had no idea. I just yeah. I listened to it on you. And that video, uh, to my the last time I checked, nobody had managed to like extract that video from that thing. So you can't like go on YouTube and watch it. Like you need this thing to do yeah. that, which is very kind of cool in this era. And yes, actually, I really do like that. Actually, <laughs> um, so we actually, I'm glad that we spent a lot of time talking not only about you know the nature of you know you know Keenan's lyrics, but also the visual aspect of Tool, which is so Adam Jones primarily controls that. We'll talk about the videos a little bit later as we go. But before we move on, before I try to say set the scene, uh, Scott, you want to rain on the parade? I'll do my best. No, I. This is a uh, this is a band, and, and someone made the point uh, last night uh, before we taped this uh, last night on Twitter. It doesn't seem like it's really up Scott's alley, and they're right. They're right. You know, progressive <laughs> progressive metal, not two of the genres that, that you know I check the box office being uh, too terribly interested in, and yet uh, it's to Tools credit that there are bits and pieces here that I really did grab onto when going through and listening back through the the, the catalog. Uh, I had mentioned in our initial email there there are two things I really knew about Tool before we we dived in here, and, and I knew I knew the general shape of Tool right b before I listened to each of the albums prepping for this episode. Uh, but the two things I really knew is when I was a radio DJ in college, Tool was one of the three most requested bands that people would call in to to hear. So That's so telling. It's, it's amazing. A rabid yeah. fan base. And if you want the other two, it was Fish and Dave Matthews Band. Yeah. Um, so it, rabid fan base. And then uh, the, the way I was introduced to Tool, I am quite certain, is through Beavis and Butthead. Uh, right. Their reaction to the uh, sober video in which Butthead says, whoa, if my hand moves that fast, uh, I'd never leave the house. Uh, <laughs> that was my introduction to Tool. I also know exactly what shot in the video he's talking about, <laughs> where the creature kind of looks at its own hand and it's yes. like jittering really yes. quickly. <laughs> right near the end. Yep, yep, yep. So that was my initial introduction to to, uh, to Tool. Now, uh, on the band, it's now I, I long time listeners know I love drummers, and so I, I I automatically have this affection for a lot of what they do because of how talented Carrie is. And lyrically, Jeff is right in that there are there are there are times I have no idea what's going on. There are times I have no idea what he's trying to say. There are times early in the career where I'm actually kind of, I don't want to say repulsed, but I'm 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 pushed away by by the. Lyrics. I have a story about that, Scott. Can't tell you. Yeah, continue. continue. Yeah. And uh, but but there are times when I know exactly what he's trying for, and I think he's really got something. I think there is something kind of deep in what he's trying to get to, and there are whole albums. Uh, in, in which there are these sort of themes he's trying to explore. And it, it works in places. I really found myself uh, liking those lyrics in, in many places. Um, I like the fact they don't care. Right? They, they, they don't care what you think about them. They don't care 
how often the albums come out. They don't care about radio play very much. They don't do interviews. Uh, Maynard is more, more interested in, in his, his wine business uh, and, and promoting that in various places. And I like what uh, Noam said about music is art and art in music. These guys really care about the way things are presented. Uh, they, they, they care that's about... Why I don't, that's why I hate it when people call them just, quote, pretentious. I'm like, no, oh, no, they're not pretentious. They actually... They're trying for something that's art. They should yeah. be allowed that kind of pretension. And they also, Scott mentioned uh, the wine. If you watch the documentary that was made about Maynard's uh, wine journey called Blood into Wine, I walked away from that feeling it's like... Blood into Wine, of course, <laughs> of course. I walked away from it feeling like a lot of his pretension is an act. Uh, I'm just saying. They if get go it. Watch it. They're in on it, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, at least a little bit. Because uh, this is more of a, a perfect circle thing. It's a, a, a tool side project that uh, went very political at one point. It had an entire album that was like about the Iraq War and, right. and Bush. A big cover album. That was a cover album. Remember it well. But unlike the Weezer one, they actually did. They actually have some a couple of like just all time great covers there. The Imagine, a cover of the worst song ever written, Imagine by John <laughs> Lennon, is somehow made amazing by uh, turning it into like a dissonant song. And um, when the levee breaks, really good cover on that album. But uh, yeah, um, but but yeah, with Tool, it never got to the to the level of like uh, explicit current thing politics. I mm. think. I mean, I mean, their biggest, you know, their biggest political target was L. Ron Hubbard, near as I can tell. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and they really took a piece out of him on eulogy, by the way. We'll yes. get to that. I guess I have, to, I have to say, like, just you know, a fair assessment of what Tool's flaws are. As I said, you know, I'm not into his lyrical trip, so I can't rate that as a flaw or a virtue simply because it's just not for me. You know, it doesn't sing to me. But as a vocalist, I like him a lot. I think uh, Tool's flaws generally fall down to repetition, mm -hmm. and and I think repetition may be a flaw that that lies at the core of the entire you know heavy metal genre you know the you know the the hammering riffs it's like it has a very physical effect on a listener which is almost like intoxicating which is why adolescent boys go crazy for it <laughs> but when you're not an adolescent boy you're like okay don't bore us get to the chorus right and that's one of the things that king crimson made them a singular band which is that they never wasted your time a song like fracture could be 11 minutes yeah. long but it went through like seven different progressions it had every reason to be that length um tool are less disciplined than king crimson are i will say that and then you then it's just 
it's not even really a knock on tool because it's saying you're not as good as like the Beatles or a band that I consider to be like really like competing in their sphere. The effect but, is a little different. Like if I'm listening to something like Dream Theater, right? right. Which I didn't dare bring up. Thank yeah, I mean I'm Scott is thanking his I know uh, Dream like, Theater. Oh, yeah, I, mean, I thought you were gonna mention I was thinking like Porcupine Tree. Oh no, Porcupine Tree, tree are tree. I, I mean Porcupine Tree are also very closely linked in my mind with uh, with both Tool and Dream Theater, but we of can course they, we they get into that but uh, but Dream Theater move through, like you said, 15 different iterations of something throughout an 11 minute song and Tool don't. But mm. the effect is different. Like Dream Theater is like you got to you got to concentrate. It's like it's like the difference between a NASCAR track and a Formula One track. Right. You know, you could just tune out and just kind of flow with this like rip, rip, repetitive uh, riff. Whereas with Dream Theater, it's like if you don't pay attention, there's a right turn all of a sudden and you're like in the <laughs> you're in the divider. Right. Right, exactly. That's a really great analogy. All right, listen. Now we've, we've set this whole enchilada up. Let me just basically introduce. And there's only one other thing I want to say. It's just by way of trying to understand Tool, if, you, if this music sounds alien to you. One thing that helps to understand who they are is to understand where they came from musically. And, and I think also maybe to understand the scene that they were on, which is Los Angeles in the early 1990s. And these are people who very tellingly all pretty much drifted out to L.A. because they wanted to be a part of the entertainment industry. Adam Jones was working. I was doing like set design and stuff. Like this is how he ended up doing meat puppets for the videos later on. He acquired these skills, and I know that Keenan was doing it too. I think they got Danny Carey in the band because he just happened to be living down the hall like, while they were doing auditions, and like you know, he showed up to drum for them. And they're like, okay. I'm amazed well, we at how often that's the story. Like how, it, it, how often the guy upstairs, the guy down the hall, ends up being a perfect mate for the next thirty years of your life. How does that happen? Well, and also, like, you know, with uh, with the hindsight of decades, you see what kind of soup it was. It was like a hate Ashbury kind of situation. And if you look at their history, yeah, it's like, oh, they rubbed elbows with bands like Green Jelly and Tom Morello and Rage all these Against Machine. People. I mean, apparently Maynard was like the guy that they were thinking would be the, you know, there was like, are we going to go with Morello or are we going to go with Keenan? And then yeah. they went with Morello. <laughs> There's always those. And if you look, if you ever do, uh, if you guys have, I, have you done Queens of the Stone Age? I don't know. No, we haven't. If you ever do, that's also a whole other world of like these people knew these people and desert sessions and they played a little bit with these people. And this EP, it's this whole crossbreeding of people. And they were all sort of stewing in the same milieu, because it, it, which is rebellion against what was currently you know, commercially dominant and mind-deadingly dominant in the charts. And of course, if it's 1990 and 1991, what is it? It's hair metal. I've got the power! Well, no, it's, it's awesome, but if you're, if you're playing the kind of music that, that these guys are playing, it's Guns N' Roses. And oh, it's, sure. white, it's White Snake. And it's poison. And it's the hair metal stuff that, of course, Nirvana would be the ones to actually sweep away. But it wasn't like they were the only people rebelling against it. They weren't the, it wasn't, the ferment was not brewing merely in Seattle. All right. People in Los Angeles had their discontents as well. And uh, those who were in this metal scene took it in this direction instead of going for like the glammed up sort of pompous November rain kind of stuff, which admit, I'll admit I still love all that slop. We have a great episode on GNR. Um, uh, what these guys wanted to do instead was go back to what they thought of as like early Metallica. And it's almost like a, a karmically a 
appropriate handoff point because this is right when Metallica was were themselves sure. going for like the big chart success. Mm-hmm. And we're 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 ceasing those prog epics and that the, that 80s era. You know, we think of like Kill 'Em All, Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets. Um, uh, and they were turning into load and reload for God's sakes. Uh, Tool filled that gap. They wanted to do something more intellectual and more uh, sort of uh, clearly ambitious, progressively ambitious. And the funny thing about it is that their earliest stuff, we have, there's an early demo tape, which we don't really have to talk about. It's credible enough, but all those songs reappear uh, between their first EP and their first album. So we should start with their first album, which is called Opiate. And it's 1991, and they already sound clean as a whistle tight as a tick and already have all the kind of lyrical ticks that that are going to make some people roll their eyes guess what the opiate is people that's right it's religion i mean that's as predictable as it gets it's you know sort of sort of you know very predictable like you know counterculture sloganeering the early 90s los angeles scene but it doesn't matter i think this music is actually shockingly well formed it's a a mix of there's two live songs which might as well be studio right you would never know the difference Never, except for the moment where he's like, "Get that Bob Marley dude out of here!" <laughs> funny. We had to, uh, we had to, we had to uh, get them out of here. We had to kick them out. Yeah. And and by the way, we want to talk about how fully formed they sound. The 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 final song on that op the opiate the the sort of the 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 try the title track. Right. Uh, they re released it this year. They sort of redid it. Oh, they did. I, I with, didn't. I missed this. Oh. It's called like opiate squared. I don't know if you want how you how you would <laughs> how you would verbalize it. It's opiate with a like a little a two. Two, yeah. a superscript two, like uh, Alien and three. it's it's slightly <laughs> slowed down. It's slightly heavier on the guitar because that's what they sound like. But like the song is essentially the same. Uh, but what I was going to say about the live tracks is it also shows this kind of um, affinity for, uh, like you said, Black Flag Rollins band uh, hardcore um, uh, shows. You know, yeah. like mm-hmm. I actually mm-hmm. in the in the mid two uh, thousands, I went to a metal festival in belgium and there were a bunch of like new york era hardcore bands that are mad ball stuff like that and uh and um that vibe reminds me a lot of this the the way the intensity of it yeah yeah the energy that they kind of command in the shows and stuff it felt very much like that and they play stuff at like 15 bpm quicker live than they do on the album (laughs) just because they want you to go absolutely nuts yeah, that's something about Tool's audiences. People always talk about how the, the intensity of a Tool fan base can sometimes be grating. But the sincerity is real. And the reason they're so sincere is because this band does tap into something on those live shows, which, ironically enough, they, they're, they're live evidence on record is very scant and almost intentionally mysterious. They do not have a lot of live stuff out there. 
But uh, like, yeah, you get the intensity, the purity of it. It has that punk purity. I think of like, you know, like minor threats, straight edge, hardcore kind of stuff. It's like we're going to have and, and, and again, in, you know, updated to the modern era. We're going to have a religious experience here, but we don't believe in religion. Um, by the way, I'll just say for the studio tracks here, the obvious highlight for me is part of me. That is a pop hit. I mean, that's a damn catchy chorus. That's a damn catchy hook. Uh, they stopped writing, you know, this briefly this you know, concisely very quickly mm-hmm. it's kind of a shame because they actually had a knack for a catchy hook I don't think that first one, Sweat, is all that bad either. Um, no, no, this is a good, this is a good EP. I mean, the thing that that strikes me about this is the the lyrics and the, the lyrics, <laughs> the lyrics in a oh, way no, that's that is. I'm going to tell my story. Okay, yeah, you go first. <laughs> I'm just the, the lyrics in a way that's hard to ignore because yeah. they are in your face. They are juvenile. They're mean. I mean, they're they're not kind of as they would down the road a little bit. The kind of funny, you know, in joke sort of meanness. They're just really mean and not insightful. And look, I can I can maybe do like one or the other. But when you pair these juvenile, profane lyrics with sort of the 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 the, the Rollins sort of speed metal attack. It sounds like you're actually in. trying to hurt someone. Yeah, and I, I, man, in my entire life, I've never actively sought that out when I'm trying to listen to music. That's I never, ever, ever like uh, uh, the live track jerk off when it, I should play God and shoot you myself because I'm tired of waiting, or uh, even on Hush, which thematically is about censorship, and, you know, and oppression in a way, is presented so over the top in your face lyrically that I still have a hard time listening yeah. to it and getting to the to the message. Consequences Course of action ending Doesn't matter what's right It's only wrong if you get caught If consequences dictate My course of action I should I should play God and just Shoot you myself Okay, so the story I'm going to tell you, and it actually does have an interesting follow-up a little bit later in the episode, is that, you know, as always, you know, when we're preparing for these shows, I play this stuff as, you know, around the house, right? I put it on, my, my wife will walk in and out doing things. She walked in and I had this EP on, like I guess it was like a week ago. This is the first time this has ever happened. A lot of times she'd be like, oh, you're doing Willie Nelson this week? That's nice. She was a little offended. She was like, 
that is horrible. That's a horrible thing to say to anyone. I've never heard her do that. Mm. Like my wife's not a blue nose, but she was actually taken aback by yeah. the viciousness. There, of you these could lyrics. never. You would. Nobody would ever describe Tool's music as pleasant. Right, and I said that well, as a actually, gigantic I think sometimes it can be quite. I think tools well, music can be quite dreamy, especially later, later on. Yeah, in yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but but you're never you're never far off from like an aval a sonic avalanche. That's you know, true. even like at a quiet songs, you're like you don't. Once again, it's like don't a get formula, comfortable. It's like don't get comfortable. One, yeah, be careful. <laughs> There's a right turn coming up. But yeah, it's funny that you said that because I've never had I've never seen my wife have that reaction to any of the stuff we listen to, um, and I kind of had I was I br- I brushed it off. I was like, wow, wow, whatever. You know, like, you know, I'm the guy who can listen to Lou Reed singing about heroin junkie murders all day. I'm, I'm into it. But uh, she had a point. Something that they actually moved away from pretty quickly. Not yeah. immediately, yeah. but sort of in steps over time. Now that they're old men, they're not doing that kind of yeah, stuff. Nineties edginess. I'm sure he would. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure if um, I'm sure Maynard has probably even spoken about this. But yeah, I mean, like, that was actually why it was important for me to locate them within the context of the rest of the music going on around them, because you have to understand this is almost an adolescent yawp of rebellion. Mm-hmm. It is just like ha ha. We're gonna shock the squares. But we're going to shock the squares with sh- with shockingly well put together music and chops. And that's the thing. If you could just imagine this as an instrumental album where it's just a voice, you're not going to have a problem with it. At least if you like, if you have my tastes. Um, uh, but yeah, those lyrics do, do sometimes get to you. But this was just the beginning for them because what they were really doing is working on, at the same time really that this came out, they were working on their debut album. Uh, they're never going to move this fast again between re- releases. <laughs> um, and, and that, of course, is 1993's Undertow. Now, I have, again, a lot of thoughts about this one. This is one I came back to much, much later in life. I didn't hear this one until like 2010. I heard Enema and Lateralis. I, don't know, I always say lateralis. Is it lateralis? I think it's lateralis, I think, yeah. Well, I guess I'll have to change it on the fly. Lateralis. Because okay. it's kind of Latin, you know, it sort of has that yeah, Latin. Yeah, I get you know, it. Like, I heard those at the time, and I didn't hear Undertow. I went back to Undertow, and surprise, surprise, you know, early tool, it's more concise, and concision is a virtue, as you know <laughs> with me. What do you guys think?
Uh, I also uh, circled back to it uh, afterwards. I mean, again, Sober was the song that kind of got me into Tool. But because at that time, uh, Anima was already out and then came Stink Fist and uh, the title track from that album, both of which really great songs and had the exactly the type of music video that like I was craving at the time. Uh, I then kind of moved forward with their stuff and only then went back to listen to it years later. And it you is talk like about that sober music video right now. Let's let's just talk about uh, Adam Jones's propensity to insert bizarre and upsetting meat puppets into videos and and, and yeah. involved H.R. Giger-esque puppetry. Yeeks. So there, yeah. So there's uh, there's a, there are there are a few tool videos. I think there's five or six uh, of them. I could I could kind of offhand name them. It's there's sober. There's Stink Fist and Anima. Then there's uh, uh, Parable and Parabola, which is like a dual song. Yeah, and also Schism from that album also has a video of it. And then for 10,000 Days, there was um, uh, there was one too that I'm can't remember I'm, it either. I'm not I'm, I'm not landing on right now. But uh, um, and by the way, when the well, we'll we're, we're gonna get to we're gonna get to uh, to Lateralis. We'll talk about that. But yeah, like that video again is sort of stop motion has all these very bizarre it's think of think of like a low rent the nightmare before christmas except very right. nightmarish <laughs> right like the like jack right yeah oh I, scott did you watch this thing oh sober yeah i've seen the video yeah yeah uh, oh i mean i it was new to me so i mean i was just like oh wow. great Another yes, you just weren't fuel. a beavis and butthead fan i guess well see the guy wasn't i, I missed <laughs> that and, and and the thing is is that like it's, this is now we've completed the trifecta of 90s bands with upsetting video discographies because we did Afghan Wigs and we did Nine Inch Nails and now we have Tool yeah. and they really just like messing with our heads I am just a worthless liar I am just an imbecile I will only complicate you trust in me and fall as well I will find a center in you I will chew it up and leave Trust me, trust me, trust me Video is one of the few times, honestly, one of the few times, one of the memorable times that MTV actually had to get involved in censorship. Uh, Tom Petty's "You Don't Know How It Feels." They they blurged out the uh, joint. joint, and mm -hmm. when the Stink Fist video was released, MTV just called it Track One. They they would not use the term Stink Fist when promoting that video. <laughs> well, yeah, well, for for good reasons. Yes. Well, what do we what do we think about Undertow though? Because this is an album where I have to say they're still writing songs that. Well, I mean, I guess I could imagine here. Uh, it, it's always going to sound fun to our, our our largely conservative audience when I say, "Well, the two of the hottest tracks on this are called Prison Sex and Sober." Uh, <laughs> really flaming grooves. I recommend them highly. Oh, Prison right Sex! After it, prison Sex, boy, that's a great one. Also and, has a fantastic music video. I'm yes, sorry, well, I'm, God, I apologize well, to Prison Sex for forgetting. Oh it's <laughs> amazing. That one reminds me of the scary part of Toy Story where they go to the bully's house and he has all the weird oh, uh, yeah. Frankenstein <laughs> mannequins together. That's exactly what that is. It's a bunch of Frankenstein mannequins. 
evil toys. Yes, it's very nightmarish. Um, and yes, it is. It is hard to get into some of their uh, later tracks, like a hooker with a penis. You know, and I said it's that's always the dichotomy of Tool is you have a song about hmm. opening your third eye to the chakras of the universe, followed by a, a track like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think of this album debut? How do you I, rate it? Oh, oh, are we doing a re-rating things? Well, are we rating going things through, comparatively? Well, you know what I mean. Yeah, you know, again, we're going through these one by one. Uh, you know, having having circled back to it, I think as a as a like a, if you want to judge that as their like debut album, I think it's one of the strongest ones that I know. Just in terms of it being like a, a an artistic statement that they never really backed down from they only took further right they never were like oh our next album is going to be three and a half minute songs because we want to do something more basic i don't know whatever like they they that was their like uh vision statement uh and yeah they're still they're still doing that i would yeah. say one of the differences from the ep to undertow is an understanding that they could control themselves um, in the way the music is presented, meaning some of that some of that rage and rawness and fury that they wanted to release could be controlled until it detonated. And there's some of that in in sober, right? The the verses are are somewhat languid, and, and then you you sort of get that explosion of the pre-chorus and into the, into the chorus. And there are a few places here where you sort of have that, that dynamic working. Not, not quite the soft, loud dynamic like we would associate with some of the grunge acts and, and Nirvana kind of perfected, but just just being able to control what they what they wanted to accomplish, controlling that anger or rage or, or, or the musical explosion that was sort of just waiting around the corner. Lyrically, um, it's not as profane, it's not as juvenile... <laughs> As the, as the debut or as the EP, but they don't quite move all that far away. There's stuff like Swamp Song, which, to Jeff's point, I think Swamp Song, musically, might be my favorite thing on Undertow. Lyrically, I'm, you know, less impressed about this song, about how easy it is to get lost in a bog, and I hope it sucks you down and sort of wishing this this badness upon someone the else. The negativity of it, yeah. Right. <laughs> We understand he had a really miserable childhood. Yeah. I mean, those who aren't aware, apparently, his you know his really unhappy relationship with his stepfather. His mother died when yeah. he was very young, and all this this anger. She was in a coma for a yeah. long time. That's yeah, where ten. That's where ten thousand days. Thousand days, yeah. exactly. And but to my point earlier, you know, right after that, or very soon after that, is a song that uh, four degrees, and and there's some really I think beautiful sentiments so. in here. Lo locked up inside of you. 
like the calm beneath castles is a cavern of treasures that no one has been to. Let's go digging. Uh, and it's a it's a theme that would be returned to many times, this idea of finding yourself or finding you know, peace or enlightenment. But you have something like Swamp Song coming just before something like Four Degrees in which I think you know, Maynard is getting somewhere, is, is, is figuring out where he wants to go with the lyrics. Uh, again, musically, something like Bottom or Crawl Away, it's almost grungy and it's riffage. Now, the bass placement and the prominence of the bass riffing is certainly more on a Tool song than, say, something like Stone Temple Pilots, but the riffage on Bottom or Crawl Away is kind of similar. Uh, it's yeah. 1993. I think Bottom's a bit of a waste at Henry Rollins. Yes. You know, he, yes. Oh, really? I was gonna, I was gonna, I, I, I was gonna push back against that. I actually well, like that go. song a lot. Well, then tell us. Uh, because and 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 Scott was talking about control. I actually think this reminds me. First of all, I like, I, I artists like Henry Rollins and like Keenan himself. I like seeing them show up on other projects. There's a one of the did the Deftones. One of their favorite songs of mine has Keenan on it. It's called The Passenger. But uh. Uh, Henry Rollins has a song called Liar. Oh, right? Of course, everyone yeah. knows Liar. It's even, even I know right? Liar. And yeah. this, <laughs> and this has this has a lot of that Liar energy to it. And you said self control. That reminded me of it because they kind of they slow it way down in the middle, and they have this like Henry Rollins intellectualizing kind of section. <laughs> yeah, but and it's meant to like it kind of builds and builds and builds, and then it just comes back into like this sort of screaming uh, uh, refrain. Uh, and I like that. I thought that was because, yeah, it is a it's a weird. And when you're coming from like a metalhead background, that idea of like all of a sudden in the middle of your like grind, you got to like, stop. No, no, hold on. We got to make a quick point. Quiet. Now back to your energy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we interrupt you all the time. So no, I I, yeah. I I think that was about it in terms of points I wanted to make. It's 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 a, more muscular in places. I still think that the production on the EP in here is not as muscular as it would be later on. I, I think they figured out a way to make themselves sound even better and and really highlight the individual uh, instruments and and how good uh, most of them are uh, on those instruments. The bass player would be replaced, I think, uh, just after this album. Yes. Um, but. I think the production here is a little, it's a little, not soft, but it's not as dynamic as it would be on future albums. Well, I mean, speaking of the production, well, well, actually, before I get to the production, I would like to say one final point about Undertow, which is that one thing you can really appreciate about it is it's, it's, uh, you know, intelligent brevity. You know, at 69 minutes, 
this is as short as a tool app <laughs> will ever be again. <laughs> this is going to be a recurring theme of one of my complaints about the band is that if you know anything about me from listening to this show, you know I really like albums that do not go on too long. I also like albums that have the courage to take time to you know calm things down, give you a little a pause, you know, the inter- musical interludes, which Tool does a lot of. And yet, you know, every one of these records coming up is an eighty minute proposition if not more okay so that it makes all of them rather dense um you know a dense slog and this is again you know, a thing we've talked about during the show many times is the curse of the 90s the curse of the cd age where you know just the expansion to that capacity uh, maybe forced or helped bands indulge in some of their less you know, impressive instincts in terms of throwing everything they had onto it instead of, you know, less being more. Interestingly, like, I always felt like that length almost lent itself to, like, a A A-side, B-side listening experience where you would listen to half the album, take a break, and then listen to the other half. Well, then there you go. If that's the way you think about it, fine. Then you just listen to two records. Yeah, essentially. (laughs) That's all you're doing. And, of course, this brings us to two tools follow-up album their second album which is really the landmark record for them this is the one that broke them big it took three years and one thing they did and i was just talking about this scott was mentioning how their production would improve well it proves a lot when they get david bottrell who is the producer of many many things has been involved in a lot of great art rock throughout his career but had most recently done king crimson's reunion album frack it's a record we discussed on our episode. It's a great reunion album. A lot of great stuff in there with Adrian Ballou singing. And um, he comes in and he gives Tool's next album, Enema, a sound that is, first of all, both in keeping with Undertow, but a just an obvious step forward. And it's a step forward that matches the ambition of the band. So this is, as I complained just five minutes ago, a 70 months, 79 minutes and 13 seconds or something like that it's ridiculously long i don't actually mind it on this album this is to my mind they're clearly their greatest album and even though i have no purchase with whatever lyrical themes that maynard is on about when it comes to like whether it's you know frankly you know third eyes enemas or stink fists or you know (laughs) you know how many chromosomes the human body might eventually evolve into or Jungian shadows and all the stuff that sounds like, you know, a guy who never went to college suddenly dropped acid and started reading books at the library. It's, it, it's got a bit of that to me lyrically, if I'm going to criticize it. But everything else about this musically is so impressive. And I think first and foremost, what leaps out to me is how they have developed an ability to create textures. an album where like a lot of the best songs uh begin with maybe like two minutes of just like a slow build just percussion 
and I don't know if it's Carrie who does it or if it was, this, you know, he was given the ideas of samples were done by other people. But some of the percussion work on this record is some of the best and most interesting stuff in the entire 1990s. Yeah, the ta the ta the tabla drums, which is like yes. an Indian an Indian yeah, uh, sure. instrument. Yeah, he. I think Tool did for the tablas what the Beatles did for the sitar. <laughs> well, the Beatles <laughs> used the tablas themselves, my friend. <laughs> yeah, know? no, I know, but it's less. It's like it's less associated. People hear a sitar now and they think like, oh, Beatles, right? Um, it, uh, you're, this is really well uh, put. What you said now, like the 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 idea of textures and the idea of all of a sudden like. It's almost like the transition from mono to stereo, which it isn't, but you know, it has that kind of. The, it's all. They it's broadened sort of their sonic palette so much that it doesn't feel repetitive. Mm -hmm. When and they it, when mm -hmm. they get heavy, they've got another mode and a gear to shift into, which is really quite fascinating. And I can think of two other albums that uh, the, two other bands who made a similar transition. I mean, uh, a Radiohead made it not from Pablo Honey to the Benz, but from the Benz to OK Computer, I think. And I love the Benz, but they they kind of stepped up their ability to do a soundscape right you know they kind of a major upgrade and i think muse did that as well between showbiz and origin of symmetry uh from just a band that had a guitar and a bass and a drum to this where you're thinking like what is what's making the sound even right that's uh, scott before i you know i dive into this we'll acknowledge i'll say this that i get why the lyrics and it, it, it's almost like it wants to be aggressively uh, offensive, right? The thing is called enema. And you're like, okay, I know what that means. Oh, of course, what you don't mean, it also means anima, which is the Latin word for spirit, which takes us into that weird union obsession that he's pursuing right now. The lead single is called Stink Fist, for crying out loud. Track one, Hooker with a Penis, is a major highlight of the record. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you think to yourself, like, is this just something that kids buy to offend their parents? Or, like, you know, is this just needless provocation? And I said, I can get why that just would push people away from the outset. But I'm telling you, the substance musically here is superb. Yeah, now, especially you... when the song Anima is about how L.A. should fall into the ocean <laughs> well but i mean yeah everyone's known that i mean geez warren zevon was writing about that back in 1976 anyways scott yeah what are your thoughts to start i i agree with you i think it's their best album and there's a lot i like on here 
And I think in a way it's the fulcrum from where they, they, they go from, you know, what, what they began as and where they came from and where the lyrical aspirations of Maynard aren't quite as far away from his grasp at the, as they would be. And you don't get some of the, I, I have some critiques on some future albums in terms of length and how they go about, oh, yeah. how they go about organizing some of those songs. Here it's not uh, it's not over the top. I think most of the time is earned. Some of the longer songs are very very good. So I think this is their best album. I like uh, a few things here. So Eulogy. One of the cool things about Eulogy is how it opens. In my mind, the first time I, I hear that, this song, yeah. it is the sound. So the song's called Eulogy. I hear the ha- the hammering of letters into a tombstone. You know, like a hammer and chisel hammering letters into a tombstone that's what i hear and then it evolves from there eulogy it evolves into like something like can's ethnological forgery series that's a pretty obscure reference but if you're a prog fan you'll know it i mean it's seriously they would do these things where they made it sound like imitations of like tribal music you'd hear in documentaries like this sounds like tribal drumming in the background it sounds very almost uh, for a eulogy there, there's something very i don't know very primitive about mm-hmm. it and that that's the power it draws on it's and really... it's yeah it's this very weird it's this very weird sonic thing there's a little horn it's like a zurna horn or something like that <laughs> you know that thing and yeah. you're like what am i listening to this is so fascinating and interesting Yeah, go ahead. Um, <laughs> hooker with a penis. <laughs> now, Can we clip that? I, yeah, I, I just want to get that as like a one-second MP3. I'm going to put as a response to every tweet you make <laughs> ever again. Just hooker with a penis. We, we do that occasionally around here at the old radio station with a college student, <laughs> so I know what you're trying to do. Um, so Sorry. It is, it is a – it could have been – if this were on the EP, it would have been just an out-and-out screed, right? And there are still – it's it still is it a way, but the points that Maynard makes when when making the larger point about you know people calling the, the band sellouts right is essentially what it comes down to selling out, laying down, sucking up to the man, and 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 addressing these people saying the band has sold out. I you know interesting things in here like before you point that finger, you should know that I'm the man, so you can point that finger well up your ass. But the point being, you know, he's. Who decides about the future of a band or an entity, right? He, and also, how, how do who, you know? What, what, what kind of an impossibly demanding audience could be accusing exactly of yes. selling out yes. for God's sake? <laughs> but I, that's I, the hilarious part. I think near the end, and in '97, there wasn't even internet. You know, there wasn't right. even like a YouTube comment section in '97. How do you even know? <laughs> how would you even know that your fans were mad? Yeah, and the, but the, I think the, I think it's the last verse or close to it. All you know about me is what I've said about. Uh, I, I've said about you. Know, I sold out long before you'd ever heard my name. You know, like 
saying all, all you know is you know, it's a secret band. It's a private band. They don't share a lot anyway. And so you're, you're, you're putting yourself ahead of people who would know better. This is, this is our thing. It goes back to what I said at the start about them just not caring about some things. And I think in the, in the span of making that point, there are actually some sort of interesting philosophical points that Maynard makes in those lyrics. In a lot of ways, it kind of it, it epitomizes the way they've carried themselves throughout their career. Uh, yeah, I hate to say that "Hooker with a Penis" is is kind of the singular <laughs> song that that represents the tool as, aesthetic, but it does in a way. Uh, it does. Let me talk briefly about uh, yeah. "Push It," and then you guys can yeah, yeah. finish off. That's another one of my favorite songs on on this album, and it deals with a very very uh, sensitive issue. It's, you know, it's a song about domestic violence. And the idea of love versus being in this very dangerous situation, both on Eulogy and on Push It, I think it's one of the first times that the band is really not in a hurry to do what they're going to do. Eulogy stretches out on Push It. You have this entire midsection that has this eerie calmness to it. And I think reflective of what I assume exists in a lot of these abusive relationships and that you go through good times, calm times, and then, of course, it explodes right near the end. You have these very sharp guitar riffs that ends in this frenzy in the line, remember, I will always love you as I claw your throat away. Um, that's a really powerful song, both lyrically and musically. It might be the highlight of the album for me. say that it's the single greatest song they ever recorded um for me at least and you know i i i've known most of this music for a while now i've really only can i come back to it recently but i known this once you know as i said since 2002 or so it immediately jumped out at me it's like they're on a musical level you know just leave aside the thematics which are as i said i think he, he really clearly seems like he's speaking from experience there i mean but uh the musical journey on that is amazing it's like an intergalactic exploration of inner space so it's like you know here's let's go inside our own minds and, and find this this strange torment and it's both 
harrowing and beautiful. It's never ugly. And it is, again, a, a band that I will complain constantly about how they don't edit themselves and how like they, they, they overindulge you know, with repetition. This earns every second of its 10-minute running time. I was going to say, after all these complaints about brevity, you're like, oh, Tool's best song? Nine yeah. minutes, 55 seconds. I am, and the irony is what it is, man, because this, because you know, I mean, I almost get why they kept that making everything else so long. Because they're like, we did this. We got to keep trying to do this. Because how are you going to top that? I mean, I think Eulogy, actually, which is similarly long at eight yeah. and a half minutes, yeah. that comes very close. I think that's that's a fantastic song. But the other thing I want to give credit to this record about is actually, you know, again, I was talking about pacing and this. For a, an overlong 80-minute 80, 80 album, it's pretty well structured. Like, it has a nice flow, an ebb and flow between it. It opens with, like, three really big epics. But then you've got, like, a little instrumental interlude. You've got, like, it, it, it fades in and out from things. In fact, right after Hooker with a Penis, there's this little like keyboard ditty called Intermission, mm -hmm. yeah. which is just like 57 seconds of Booker T like keyboard, which sounds totally out of place on a Tool album, but it's actually a pretty nice little groove. I don't know why it's there, but I'm glad it is. And then, of course, it goes into another harrowing nightmare called Jimmy, which is uh, uh, another one, actually, that I think is a highlight for the record. That one's a, a rather personal song, I'm assuming, because that's his name. Again, not having explored the mythos of Tool, and given the fact that this guy, even though he's putting himself out there in public, is intensely private, I'm not going to speculate on what the meaning of some of those lyrics are. I'm going to let other people fill them in. <laughs> But yeah, from start to end, you know, the one thing I'll complain about with Tool's albums, well, the one, one thing I'll complain about is they always have this thing where they have like an incredibly long final track and then there's like two minutes of silence, you know, and then there's like some like wacky little bit at the end. Yeah. Uh, uh, but instead they just made the whole thing third eye, which is obviously a major track for them. And I do like it a lot. And yet I don't need to hear Bill Hicks like suddenly telling me stuff that I had already heard on Comedy Central in 1992. Was it, is it the one where he's like, really high? Exactly. All those artists <laughs> that you love who use drugs. Well, I like how know. he draws that out. You don't exactly know what you're hearing. I mean, like, uh, I remember, like, I mean, I, I, it's funny. I mean, Hicks is a pretty great comedian, obviously. Um, but you know, it's this just is like, a very '90s thing. Both the secret track at the end and the idea of like, oh, I'm gonna specifically build. I'm gonna turn you like on. This, I'm gonna turn you on to this alt comedian, right? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> telling it like it is, man. Real fucking high on drugs. Yeah. 
ourselves subjectively. There's no such thing as death. Life is only a dream with the imagination of ourselves. Which, by the way, while we're here, while we're at it, kind of explains why Tula ended up on Mr. Show, of all things, yes. playing a band called Mr. Show. Uh, for those who aren't aware, Mr. Show starring Mr. Show with Bob and David, who's a creation of Bob Odenkirk and David Cross, who, of course, would go on to, you know, later, greater fame and various other things like Arrested Development, you know, yeah. Better well, call and Bob Saul. Kirk, obviously, yeah. Better call yeah. Saul and Breaking Bad and all that, right? Yeah. But um, you know, this was their sketch comedy show. It is quite literally. I don't want to get into it. It's the greatest American sketch comedy show of all time. Yeah, it's the spiritual successor to Monty, Monty Python, Python Flying and Circus. It, circus. Yeah, it's 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 it just just as that is the best that you know Britain ever did. This is clearly the best American. They revived show it later on Netflix, but and I don't, it wasn't as good. You could go watch good. it. It's from 1995. It still holds up. But in the yeah. very first episode, like one of their sort of running bits that they also then did a movie about was uh, Ronnie, a Dobbs. Called Ronnie Dobbs. It was a guy who was like a guy who kept getting arrested on cops in every state. <laughs> and uh, in that, in a, the first episode, which is from 1995, Tool appears singing the Ronnie Dobbs theme song. Ronnie Dobbs, Ronnie Dobbs. <laughs> they're credited as Pussifer in it, which is a current. Uh, tool side project with uh, Mila Jovovich. They stole the name and, and used uh, it later, right? Yeah, yeah, which is very, its that, that's very weird. But yeah, and he, they're there. Adam Jones has his famous guitar already in it, the Gibson Les Paul Silverburst like, that he's sort of famous for. They all have like weird uh, <laughs> trucker hats and... Uh, <laughs> it's and, awesome. Uh, I mean, by the way, again, I just like watch every every single episode of Mr. Show, please. But now we return you to your previously scheduled programming, yes. and we ask Noah to talk to us about Edema. Uh oh, just okay. So I mean, again, this was the album. This is the like big one. Said. I know it's hard to just tackle it all at once, but dude, <laughs> this is the pivot point album for them. Like you said, it's an album that's comfortable. Uh, uh like. Being included with like their earlier material, but also super comfortable, like lumping it in with their later stuff. Uh, it is uh, the place where, I mean, most of the people that I know that that like Tool or no Tool casually will know stuff from this album. I think this is the closest they ever came to being on the radio, being on MTV. Again, my experience with MTV is a little weird because I was in. I, I consumed what they called MTV Europe at the time, <laughs> which wasn't even MTV UK. It was a is, is that like the way like like McDonald's in China doesn't taste at all like McDonald's in America? Yeah, a little bit because they had MTV UK, but then there was MTV Europe, which was mainland Europe, but in English. So it was like weird the Scandinavian countries, French acts that sang in english but also like some american stuff some british stuff but it was a quote-unquote mtv europe um and so there was even less of it so there was like midnight blocks of stuff and yeah the the um the videos that came out of it were the ones that you know made the most uh got the most attention i think it was also probably the one that got them the most like mainstream press and stuff yeah. i think they were like they got they were nominated for a grammy for it i think um, and, uh, and, and that, so the next, we're, we're going to talk about lateralis in a second. That was the album that I, the first, their first album that I like waited for it to come out. Right. So right. when it came out, I was already a tool fan. I became a tool fan in the period between sort of this and that. Before we move on to lateralis, I mean, I just want to point out that there's, there is a certain mathematics to how Tool assembles songs on this record. And I think maybe it was like a, a routine they discovered here and then we're going to carry forward because you're going to oh, hear yeah. a lot of these things moving forward. One of them is is, is is they find this like very, very compulsively memorable 
like little riff. I'm thinking of something in particular, like 46 and two, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I mean, I can't. I mean, how you got all that, right? You want me to grab my guitar? I can do it. Right. If I had a bass here, I could fumble through it. That one. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a beautiful figure, right? And it carries through the entire track. And of course, this is one of the ones where, like, where Maynard is deep into a very weird place about human evolution and transcendence. And I'm not even. This is you know, if, if you came to this podcast hoping for me to like sort of you know, be the guy who was going to talk to you about you know the deep meaning of those lyrics, I, I'm sorry. Go go no further because I yeah, cannot. stepping into your shadow and looking at yourself from the perspective of your shadow, all kinds of stuff. I like mean, that. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> not, by the way, I don't think it's cringe. I want to. No, I don't. Cringe. I don't think it's. Cringe. I don't think it's cringe or embarrassing. I just cannot relate to it because I came to it too late in my life and maybe from the wrong perspective but that music is compulsive and it is that trait where you'll find those figures that, that kind of keep reoccurring through songs this is how they sustain sometimes these overlong running times as we'll see is by the by the way they find these figures but that to me of course sometimes also speaks of sort of sloppy execution when it comes to song construction because you shouldn't have to just sort of fade out and like do some other thing and then come back that to me is too much like early rush and if you guys remember our rush episode i went all the town on you know like how, how those early rush prog epics are just found like they stapled five things together without figuring out how they're supposed to flow tool does a much better job at making things flow not only within their songs but within the album as a whole i don't actually think they would ever do a better job than this and i kind of wonder whether they did as well because it took them like what five years to follow this up now no i don't know do you know why they just took their sweet ass time coming up with a follow-up to the album that broke them big I I I I actually do not. I think that there's I think that there are um different circumstances that caused uh, you know like the time to pass between e- each album, you know, like in the next one. This might have also been the time when a perfect circle uh started to become a thing that then also took up uh, some of his time. Yeah, they also put thing. out the box set in between those two albums. Which I do want to discuss. A saliva, which is just, it's, okay, they call it a box set, but folks, for you back home, when you think of box sets, you're like, ooh, four CDs, chock full of rarities. No, no, no the box set is actually mostly an art installation. Yes. It's, and, it's one CD. Mm-hmm. It's a one CD yeah. set. But and that, that, one, that one CD is pretty great. Okay. Well, and also, and it had the collection of all of their music videos up to that time. Right. Uh, which, again, thanks for throwing that out, Mom. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was going to, because we're going to talk at the end, we're going to recommend songs. And I was going to, because we're talking about cover versions. And, yeah, I, I am uh, one of my all-time. Versions. No, I'm, I'm going to just give it away right now. I'm going to recommend this album. Okay, that's fine. cool. Because I'm going like to I like it that much. I think it's great. We're gonna rec- I'm gonna recommend the song because I because uh, one of my all time favorite covers of any band ever of any song ever is the Tool cover for Zeppelin's No Quarter, which is on this box set or whatever you want to call it. Um, because uh, I, the, a thing that I don't like is a cover that's just straight 
Weezer's cover of Africa, which we mentioned already. Right. This one gives the the two talked about these, these theories a lot in our show, actually. So you're on the same page as us. Yeah. A good, you know what? I'll 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 uh, I'll reduce it to this. A good cover makes you go. That was a cover. That sounds like a song that you know this band wrote. Yeah. And the way that they kind of wrapped No Quarter into their own kind of sonic style is so seamless. Here, it's just brilliant. No Quarter. I'm not gonna lie about this. This is obviously making my top five at the end of the show. Uh, this validates the song. I. Now, as you can hear, if you go back to our Zep Epilet, our, our Zep Epilet, our Zep episode. Wow, that's a tongue twister. Our Zep episode, you go back there, and even there, it's like four years ago. Like I was pointing out, I was like, yeah, yeah, I really don't like No Quarter. It's like a long, draggy, slow thing. I mean, you, does you, were, my- you were wrong back then, and you'll know, be wrong now. <laughs> Tool saves this song, Tool revitalizes it. They do something with it without, like, it's fundamentally no quarter. So, like, if you know that song, you'll be like, all right, that's the song I recognize. But they expand it in a really intelligent way by, like, building real dread. And they're so much harder. I know. I'm, like, I'm sorry, Zap. It was just, it was 1972 tool in 1998 or whenever it was they recorded this are just bringing so much more fury to it. It is. A song. The, I'm not even gonna lie. If we had, if I had known about this before we had recorded our best cover songs episode, I'd have put it on there. Uh, and and it, it takes a, a while to. It has a long intro, and the right. the minute that it hits you that you're listening to something special is the um, the uh, uh, the way the song works is you know there's like two there's like an opening line right close the door put in the light na 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 and then when the when the guitar enters it hits a really discordant chord. It's this really dissonant right. sound. Instead of it like kicking into a song, it's this like bang, and you're like, wow, okay, wow, now this is interesting. And it, like you said, I think, I mean, I like the original version, but I think this gives it a an emotional heaviness because, yeah, the term no quarter, right? It's mm-hmm. it's supposed to feel like something oppressive and uh, and kind of scary. And they really lean into that. It really fits there. Yeah. So whoever said like, let's do this song. Good, good call. Good call. And I, I got, I gotta give Keenan credit as a vocalist too, because you know you're interpreting Robert Plant, which is never easy to do. Um, I, he sings this better. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Robert Plant's voice, by the way. I mean, at least before he shouted out. Um, I really love. There's a delicacy and there's a thought to the way he sings the song. He's, you know, you get that that high roar sometimes but it's much more vulnerable at a lot of times because of that melody the melody de- demands it
Otherwise, yes, I'm very impressed by this 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 cover. And by the way, I think the rest of this album is is really great. It's a bunch of live stuff, basically. Uh, they're all really good. Like a couple of like weird instrumental overtures, like there are segues between songs, or they're like improvs that were just cut out from songs. And then they have like these two giant live versions of Push It and Third Eye. And the live version of Push It is is it's almost comical because it does begin with that like whole like. Like we're gonna do something special here in a different way, kind of thing. Like, and then once that fades out, you would never know that it was a a, a live track at all. It's a completely different version of that song. We've been we've been trying something a little different this tour. We've been looking at one of our songs from a different angle, under a different light. So we can hopefully kind of see it almost for the first time. We'd like to try that for you tonight. Is that okay? We're going to need your help, though. We need your help and your permission. So we need you to find a comfortable space that's not only comfortable, but vulnerable. Shut your eyes and go there, and we'll meet you on the other side. This is a really impressive little Oz and Saz release. Scott, did you get a chance to listen to it? I did not. It's no, not on, you it's not on YouTube Music, so I did not see it. Well, and, oh, yeah, no. it is. And again, it is a it is a an oddity. Like, again, I know people who are even more than just randomly casual tool events who have potentially never heard of it. Yeah, no, um, it's something you should check out. But of course, it is sort of a, a little time marker on the way to the album they spent five years doing, which is. Yes. Well, Speaking if, of college if, radio, by the way, there's a, a secret track on the end of this called yeah. Maynard's Dick. that got <sighs> yeah. a lot of play on college radio, but they called it Maynard's Dead. That was like the. That was the the clean name that they uh, assigned it. It was always these little airplay gigs. Pearl Jam kept trying to do this to get the f bomb on the air during that era as well. P, but anyways, you know the the Red Hot Chili Pepper song P off of One Hot Minute. Yeah. That's oh yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Another another one. Well, this brings us, of course, to uh, an album that I would have called until today Lateralist, <laughs> but I, I suppose I will now call Lateralis. Yeah, picked up. Mm-hmm. Which is. The one that took, you know, five years to make. They're taking time off. They're doing a perfect circle. They're doing other things. I think he's doing Pucifer as like a joke act. But for people who don't know, Pucifer, as as you said, it was like a thing they did on Mr. Show. But then Maynard sort of like, you know, did it as like a like a gag hardcore thing, like where he'd like put on a blonde wig and like just get up and, and, and basically use it as an excuse to be silly and not be so damn serious all the time. Uh, because I think maybe he was feeling a little bit trapped by the like the intense seriousness of his image and uh, said like, eh, I got to do something else. All this leads to eventually this album. And of course, this is the album that was the place that is the way they came to my attention. This was big. This was so big that it was able to break through my otherwise complete isolation uh, from music in the charts at that time when that has to tell you something. Cause that, at that point I was a big snob uh, and it's a pretty great record. Now the question is, is it as good as Enema? And I do not think it is, and that's where I'm going to piss off a lot of Tool fans. But before I do, anybody else want to start? 
Uh, Scott, you can. Uh, you can. I'll, I'll let you go first. Yeah, let me. Well, we did not play uh, the the Maynard's Dick song on the radio, but we did. <laughs> we did play. We did play. The, Why not? We did play the hell out of Schism, and so that yeah. that bass riff, that memorable bass line that starts, is lodged in my brain for now until the end of time. And uh, the, the beautiful thing about Schism is it's not just that riff, but man, uh, Maynard does an amazing job of playing inside that riff. And the way yes. I, I think, uh, uh, Noam had said earlier, uh, you know, the, the way he delivers his lyrics and finds the, the nooks and crannies and plays with the music, that's really evident in a song like Schism. You know, a Tool song, it's, you know, probably that one or Sober, I think. And this is, I don't like this as much as the last album, but I do think it's still a very, very good album. They're still discovering that sort of formula that, that works for them, which is you know, that, that push and pull through the album, that tension and then release. And they're still uh, experimenting or using these very interesting uh interesting instruments and non-instruments and vocals. There are monk sounds on here. There are chimes. There are these droning interludes. They're really places. good at making industrial noise. That's yes, just a side observation. Yeah. Tool and uh, Trent Reznor are two greats when it yes. comes to really interesting sounding industrial clatter. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, a further, it's a further step toward sort of the, the progressive rock uh, uh, genre. And it is a lot. Uh, Jeff has been mentioning uh, the time, the length of these albums. This one is exactly two seconds short of the absolute maximum you can place on one compact disc. It's 78 minutes and 58 seconds. And in a future album that even blow past that mark and just do it digitally and put it 86 minutes or whatever the heck it is. So it is a lot. It is a lot of music. It is a lot of songs. It is a lot of, in places, weird sort of lyrical uh, side roads. But the strength here of the music still shines in a lot of places. Mentioned schism already. I really like, really like that parabola uh, yeah. uh, and then the pre-song, the, I guess, what, parable. Parable, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, in, in the future, th they just combine those and make it one song. <laughs> it would be 13 minutes, right? Right, exactly. right. But they, they yeah. cut it here. Well, the music video is both of them because it, it kind of needs to be both of them. Right, it is a two-part thing. Mm -hmm. it, it's a really great song, a really solid groove. And again, lyrically, one of the places on the album that, Mater gets a little, it's its spiritual. I mean, it really is. Recognize this as a holy gift and celebrate this chance uh, to be alive and breathing. Uh, He's actually, this is actually the best lyric he ever wrote, in my opinion. It, it, it very well could be. It very well could be. And and, and it's married to, uh, I think, the best music on the album. Alive! 
title track. Uh, I love because uh, I have a soft spot for the Fibonacci sequence. Uh, it's a fun fact <laughs> about me. One, one, two, three, five, eight. Uh, yeah, and and uh, and uh, not, and not just musically, by the way. I, that that was when I was uh, when I was uh, saying that stuff about uh, Maynard and his uh, kind of meter. I was thinking about that because not only is the the music uh, built like that, but yes, the the syllable syllabically it yeah. follows yes. the the Fibonacci sequence: black, then white. So that's one. So it's black, then white. R. So one, one, two. All I see in my infancy. Red and yellow then came to be reaching out to me, uh, and that's uh, there's a lot of thought that's put into that that I find very interesting. <laughs> there's actually a really good video on YouTube that analyzes the uh, the way that it moves up and down the Fibonacci sequence because then he does that in reverse where mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. where the the syllables uh, retract down to two one one. Listen, uh, I'm gonna tell yeah. you right now, no, I'm the, the greatest tribute you can pay to that song. Is that it does that trick and yet you don't notice? Not it. necessarily, right? Right. It's not yep. gimmicky. Okay. Right. It's not gimmicky. Because if, if it was so blatantly obvious, it would be like a hand waving look at me, and it would sacrifice the actual groove. The song's groove is good. It works. And then only later you think, like, wait, they did that, and it was the Fibonacci sequence. Yeah. Well, That's I did impressive. see some. I did see another one of those YouTube videos where some musician was listening to this, and he literally went like 15 seconds in and went, "Wait, are they doing some kind of?" Wait, is this Fibonacci? And I was like, God damn it! <laughs> some like uh, some like uh, jazz prodigy or something like that right. immediately spotted about lateralis is that if you uh if i could take uh, maynard and adam and company into the studio and hypnotize them open their third eyes and become their svengali you know open their you, know, you, you heal their chakras i guess <laughs> and, and let them listen to me and say this album should be 45 minutes it would be the greatest tool album ever made it would be a landmark of modern music in the way that we think of kid a as being a landmark of modern music because if you boil this down to its best parts without sacrificing any of the greatness or even some of the really good weird interludes, you would have the best thing they ever did. Instead, you have, as Scott pointed out, 79 minutes and 58 seconds when, alas, there should be 45. And if you're asking me to listen to 45 great minutes and then you know, you know 25 30 of stuff that I just don't really think should have made the record. That's when I start to have problems. And sometimes they come in the middle of songs. Sometimes these songs just get too long. Sometimes it's about sequencing. Like this is a band that didn't exactly release B-sides to be fair, but Triad, it should have been a B-side. That's a nice clever instrumental, 
but it, it doesn't really make sense as a conclusion to the album, nor does that last little like random like sound effects thing they yeah. throw on at the end. Yeah. I mean, that's all bullshit anyway. But like, there's too much good music here for me to ever say that it's anything less than like a B plus record. But there's just too much music that is time filling. That is, he sort of almost speaks of, oh, I had five years to think about this, <laughs> and I couldn't choose. And so I just decided to put everything on, or we decided to put everything on. When I think that, you know, as something like The Patient, which I really like, it doesn't have to be seven minutes long. That could have been five. The Grudge is so great, and yet I don't think it yeah, captures the same trick, you know, that Anima did, even with, you know, you know, by, by, by or, you know, like a song like Eulogy or Stink Fist. myself wondering why they trying to be fair here because I'm realizing there are tool fans out there that'll murder me I'm trying to understand why they didn't have the courage to to go less instead of more again I mean, maybe, maybe I don't it's understand hard to get this into their head well look I'll, I'll, once again this 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 is all about tastes and how you approach listening to albums right uh, if you do it like the way you said where it's like hey it's it's two album experience Side one, go have a, a, a sandwich, and then go listen to side two. Maybe it's different, but for me, it's this always like a me, single thing. Yeah, this hit me again. This came out in May of two thousand and one, and that is a, a pro, you know that's pretty much when I bought it. Uh, hit exactly what I was uh, into at the time, both in terms of like length and complexity, and in terms of like uh, you know loudness and and how much it kicked ass. Um, and so it, this specifically resonates with me personally more than any of their other albums, but it, that also it has, some has of their to best do work. I mean, yeah. schism is so great that the whole, the, the parabol parabola sequence yeah. is a highlight of their career. And it's like basically kind of almost an ideal of like a great kind of a, what would you call a hardcore metal suite? Okay. I love that stuff. But mm-hmm. then. Just it just isn't so easy listening. Time. It isn't easy listening. It's a, it's a big that. chore. I think uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean more into your uh, criticism as we speak about Ten Thousand Days because mm-hmm. I think it's way more guilty of this uh, mm-hmm. problem than yeah, this. I would agree because here, yes, yeah, Scott. I, I just I, I would agree. I think oh, I, I, I think I Jeff has has points, but I think they're probably better pointed toward the next album. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, because that one does some of the some of the the edits feel like they could be m- a much less noticeable than here like i feel like i would miss some of the stuff even if it was mm-hmm. maybe repetitious you're not there there are things to be said like i said this is not an easy listening album it hits you really r- hard right off the bat and then you know like eight tracks in comes ticks and leeches which is as intense and hardcore yeah and so like it's it's relentless the album is relentless 
I mean, I like that. Ticks and Leeches, by the way, another highlight of the record. That, Absolutely. They, they one sound I would... so good. That's They sound so great as a band playing on that oh, song. It's mm-hmm. just, yeah, it's just so brutal. I mean, it's the same reason I love listening to like Husker Du on something like I'll Never Forget You or Pride. It's just like devastating. It's just like being bludgeoned over the head with a bat full of like angry emotions. And, you know, earlier when he was just saying, you know, F- you, you know, go to hell, that kind of stuff. I, I wasn't into it. He's a little more eloquent here. <laughs> it does sound almost that 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 chorus part, right? Uh, it, this is what you wanted. It, that feels like it could fit on opiate. Like just that one section right. mm-hmm. feels very early tool to me. It does. It's exactly. I think I think that's probably why I made the association with that earlier stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So what do we do to explain this weird seven or five year? Another an incredibly long layoff between albums. Uh, is, it, is this when Maynard gets into winemaking, by the way? I don't remember when the, he takes that. That's a good yet. question. I actually don't know. But he, this is definitely when A Perfect Circle becomes a big thing. A big they go thing. on world tours. Yeah. Judith, which I think was their first single, which you know, uh, got... Just briefly explain Perfect Circle. It, it was basically Maynard and the Bit Tools guitar tech uh, started a secondary band. Like, yeah. basically, And his guitar tech, if you're a guitar tech, you can play guitar. So like, the guy had his own... <laughs> right. You were I mean, I, yeah, for, for, for a band like Tool, sure. Uh, and uh, yeah, they've had a couple of albums. They've had a, somewhat of a rotating cast of, of musicians, right. including, by the way, uh, Scott likes drummers. Josh Freeze, one yes. of my all-time favorite I love Josh. Drummers. I love Josh. Um, and uh, so, yeah, Ju- Judith uh, from their f- uh, first album called Meriden Alms, really good uh, uh, album. Their second album, by the way. a lot of people saying that we had to like speak up for Meriden Alms, and so it's like one of the greatest debuts of all time. I, I, yeah, I'm not, I, I, I love it the, that much. I, I like the, it. The 13th <laughs> Step, the, which is the second, second one yeah. circle album i in it i would i it would be impossible for me to leave it out of like a top five tool albums list of my like it has to i gotta sneak yeah, it in there sneak it in. Yeah, i love I it see. so much um but yeah like that started to like occupy because uh because uh meriden Elms came out in uh 2000 and 13 step in 2003 so like they put out and then emotive in 2004 they put out three albums in between <laughs> uh lateralis and Ten Thousand days so at least that's part of it, right? So, I mean, actually, this is probably the time to talk about, you know, if you want to talk about 13th Step, I think is, is better is the second album. But the, none of these three you know, records have really done much for me. Or the cover album. The cover album, okay, the cover album is intriguing, as always. Right? It has a couple of good songs on it, like I said, but it's not. It, and it's, it is too, it, it, they, again, it was very much about the Iraq War. Have you ever heard? There, have you ever heard? Uh, have you ever heard uh, a Perfect Circle's version of "What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding"? No. Yeah. <laughs> I have. It ain't great. Yeah, it, 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 it's pretty. It's pretty, and at the end of all things, like the fiddle and the drum, which is a song that Joni Mitchell performed a cappella. Okay, with just her voice. It has no guitar. It's only her voice, and uh, they they don't. You know, so it's a very strange decision to like. You know, uh, you know. I mean, Maynard actually sings that one, like you know, without anything else like behind him. 
but he's not Joni Mitchell. It is a strange, like, you know, interesting anti-war thing. And I guess maybe it enabled them to, or him at least, to escape from, you know, Tool or, or whatever he thought Tool was supposed to be. I think one reason for that is because, like, he'd been writing these sort of extroverted lyrics. And then maybe he was, I mean, my guess is he must have been doing therapy or something like that. Because that's the only thing that explains 10,000 days, right? This is the, 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 final, the follow-up, finally, to Lateralis in 2006. And, uh, I mean, there are multiple theories about what 10,000 days means. He himself says, says, oh, it's about like the Saturn in revolution or something like that. But apparently the most common theory is that it is about the amount of time that his mom was in a coma before she passed away, mm-hmm. uh, which gives you a sense of the, the uh, lyrical content of this record. It's very sort of personal, uh, even though spoken oftentimes through metaphor, sometimes rather directly. So you, you know you're in for a personal trip. say this much though i told you guys that i would have a follow-up to that anecdote i told you earlier about my wife when she walked in and listened to the opadp and she was mm-hmm. like this is offensive this is, she said she, she walked in this morning and i was i had this one on and she's like this is the first time you've played anything in the last two weeks that i've walked in and thought that's nice so that might also tell you something about <laughs> maybe coming a little softer i don't want to say softer it's not like they'd be like you know like whooshed out in their older age but this is a more ruminative album and i think I would normally like that if I was talking about a band like Talk Talk, but I think this also helps them become a little more, a little too perhaps self-indulgent. So I don't know what you guys think about Ten Thousand Days. Yeah, those critiques that you had for the last album apply and apply, apply here, yeah. even, even even more to to Ten Thousand Days. The pace is slower; it's more meditative in ways. Uh, 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 your wife saying that yeah it's kind of nice well there are places in which you'd say that um, she the, walked in at just the right time <laughs> the, the, the vocals in a lot of places here I feel are even actually more buried in the mix and I wonder if that's because it, it is a little more personal in, in a lot of ways it seems for Maynard that he didn't want to be quite so uh, up in front um, I, you know, I, I, I took some notes here, but I, I got to say, one of the things that happens here is the songs start to melt into, melt one, another. into one another. Absolutely. There, there are only a few things that really stuck out here. I, I think, uh, uh, the pot is pretty darn good. Um, Rosetta stoned, I, I think Daddy Carey plays his butt off. Not that he always is not, but, but he's, he's playing in like seven different time signatures all over the place on Rosetta stoned. That is a, a workout uh, behind the kit. Very good. Um, you know, something like uh, in, Intention has that calm, meditative energy. It meanders a bit too much. Oh, here's the, I was looking for this. My note says, they're never in a rush to get anywhere, but maybe they should get there faster. 
Um, <laughs> that's sort of my 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 note back to them on Ten Thousand Days. I, I I did not have a lot of good thoughts about the songs on this album, and the only one that I think really sticks with me is is the pot. I I respect their playing. There's never they're never not technically sound clearly, but despite the fact that his Perhaps his lyrics are mo- more focused. I almost feel like this is a less focused, less focused musically album than the ones that came before. I agree. Do you have any thoughts, Noam? Before I, uh, I, I completely yeah, sure. agree with Scott. Um, so, uh, so I, I mean, I, I, I love parts of this album to death. Right? There's a whole bunch of songs in it I love. I think again, Rosetta Stone is a is. A, I have a strange sort of issue with it a little bit. It's just a. I, it's hard for me to. It's hard for me to verbalize my my issue with it exactly. But I do think that yeah, the pot is an amazing song, and so are the first two. If I carry. Well, is your objection to Rosetta Stone? Is it is it the uh, the music? Is it the drumming? Or is it the incredibly goofy friggin' lyrical conceit about meeting aliens? Well, after I mean, I sure, into a coma? Sure, sure, and I there is something about Tool music that I need to kind of carry. There's something very not. There's like a lack of flow because it's just this sort of uh, rapid fire spoken word that you can't really understand. I, to me, I think this album excels when it's uh, in that sort of sonic scape. I could tell a story. I actually saw them live on the first time I saw them live was on the tour for this at the uh, at the uh, the Comcast Center in Camden, New Jersey. Uh, and uh, as they were playing the song Ten Thousand Days," it started to rain. There was like a thunderstorm, and it started to rain. And it there is a thunderstorm in the song, and it was this amazing experience of like. Uh, you know, like closing your eyes and letting the music kind of surround you. And, and I do think it does it well in this and also in uh, Right In Two, which is maybe my favorite song on this album, maybe. Even though, like, you know, it's not, it's lesser known and the other songs are kind of, especially The Pot is one that kind of everybody knows. Um, but I really do, uh, I really do like, love it in in sections. It's hard, It's the hardest out of all of their albums for me to listen to, like, all in a row, I think. Thumbs up. 
can explain my criticism of 10,000 Days with one song that perfectly encapsulates it, and that's Jambi, or Yambi, which, you know, has a little clever little uh, trick behind it that I only learned, like, last week, which is playing with iambic pentameter and whatnot. But what I think when I heard that song long ago was, like, that's a really good riff. I really like that. Now, why is it seven and a half minutes long? Why does it not change? Why have they run out of ideas and variations? This is a band that always used to surprise me by going to new places and different places in their music. No matter how long their tracks were, at least they'd throw something else into the mix, even if it wasn't well integrated. Here they're genuinely becoming a little bit too repetitive. And when they do change courses in some of these long songs, the pieces don't fit together as well. I guess, obviously, the whole wings. So you're from saying Marie. you know the pieces don't fit? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> trying to do that okay <laughs> whatever um the point is as i said really creating a schism in this show right now well, yeah, stop it with the puns no <laughs> god god uh but the point is is like the self-indulgence here really becomes a problem it, it, it didn't really i think cripple lateralis because that's still a great record but here I, i'm trying to find you know, like scott said I, i'm just not finding too much that that stays with me and i love the way he said like i really wish they take their you know, they take their time getting where they're going. They could speed up. That, that, that's beautiful. Um, and, 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 of course, they did the opposite. They spent the next 13 years in hibernation. 13 years. I complained about Radiohead taking too long to release albums. Well, I mean, even if they, they haven't broken up and, and they come out with a new one, it'll still have only been since, what, 2017? I'll take five years between records. 13, that's a lot. Maynard was now a winemaker, to the best of my knowledge. I have no idea what the rest of the guys in the band were up to. If you happen to know, Noam, I mean, you could educate me. Danny Carey probably just uh, doing drum clinics, uh, <laughs> you know, making garbage amounts of money off of like, I can only imagine. Enough. The yeah. kids come in, like uh, all the wannabe, like you know, boomers who are like forty-five years old. Oh, I got to drum with Danny Carey, man. Oh, not oh, even God. that. Just like, oh no, I mean, he does like master classes. He, you know, he has like uh, entire lines of gear that he yeah. that are, you know, that is are his branded his all that stuff. I think they also go and play with other bands, and it's you know they'll be like, oh, and tonight with us, our friend Danny Carey, you know, and whoever's <laughs> watching that show that night gets a treat, right? I mean, it's amazing it took so long, but they finally, I think Keenan, I read an interview actually about the, you know, before the release of this next album, their last to date, where he actually admits, it's like, yeah, I was a little bit frozen. I was like, I didn't really know what to do. 
Uh, I don't know what I know what to come up with because you know you spend that much time off and then you don't know what you know. Am I going to repeat myself? Am I going to come up with anything else? Well, what they came out with was Fear Inoculum, which is a yeah. very ironic title because it came out about a half a year before COVID. Yeah, and it is about, and it, it does deal with it sometimes, some, it, somewhat in the lyrics it, it, and stuff. Yeah. It's literally about like, a vaccine for fear. Um, again, 80 minutes long. More know. than that. More than that. It's 80 uh, on the CD, but if you get the yeah, digital, the digital version, version, it's 86, 86 or, minutes long. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. I don't have the digital version. I guess I'm glad. I'm only familiar with the old CD copy. Yeah. No, this is this is out of all of them. This is like listen in two parts, for real. Like listen up to... So at this point, I have to say, like, I really like this band in a lot of ways. I really appreciate the conceits they're going for. Um, my patience is being tested sometimes. You're like every casual Andre Tarkovsky fan. You're like, oh, I oh, want to yeah. love this. I, I want to love this, but love does it have to be eight but, hours long? But what did Solaris have? What, what, this is Andre <laughs> Rublev crap. He's painting an icon. What a big deal is that? You know? But I mean, and that's how I feel about it sometimes too. You're like, I love this, but like, I just like, I, I, I love Tool, but at this moment in time, I cannot listen to a Tool song. You know, like there are there are many bands like that where I'll be like, I can't listen to them right now. I'm in too much of a mellow mood. <laughs> See, that's, that's not my problem. In fact, my problem is this album's just too darn mellow. Yeah, it doesn't have it doesn't have the it doesn't have the discipline and the tightness. Again, you, again, I'm a predictable man, and you keep seeing me return to these themes. Is that in their earlier career, perhaps before they got more self indulgent, or perhaps they had the ability to indulge themselves. Um, they were playing tighter structures and they were being a little bit more careful about how they, they, they broke things up. But now like, I guess if you're playing only to your fans, this is fan service and I am not that level of a fan. And I hope I'm not making anyone angry by saying so. I think uh, I describe it differently. This to me feels like a little bit of uh, an attempt to, to strip down a little, I mean, not in terms of length, but in terms of the, yes, the impact.
it remind if you want to compare it to something it reminds me a little of uh, year zero the nine inch nails album that uh that uh trent reznor made after he heard the johnny cash uh cover of hurt, of hurt yeah mm-hmm. and he decided that he wanted to make a more stripped down album but that's not made- a great album <laughs> Uh, and sorry, not year zero. I'm sorry, people are gonna. No, it's not that, that with way. Keith. It's with Keith. We, we, um, with Keith. I like it. I like it, but it's it is it's very simple, and you either you either connect with that or not. It's definitely not what you exp- year zero, for example, is way more uh, sort of what you'd think of Nine Inch Nails with like thumpy beats and all of like these pads that surround you, and, and this is more like very simple, small beat, small little piano vocal. That's it. Uh, and this feels a little more of an att- like an attempt to maybe recreate Undertow, but with the every song is a 12 minutes kind of. <laughs> and that, uh, is, that is my major aesthetic critique, and I will keep hammering it until my heart ceases beating, which is that if you're going to go back to simplicity, this is the same mistake that artists always make. REM did this with Monster too in its own way. If you're going to go back to simplicity, the mistake you make is like, Oh, I'm gonna go back to like the simple rock, simple constructions, but I'm still gonna be as lengthy and self-indulgent. Uh, the simplicity only works if you're still writing four and five minute songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like trying Not to if fit. If you're into, writing eleven and thirteen minute songs, and like they're trying all, to fit, you're trying you're, to fit into an old pair of pants, <laughs> right? You're like, I mean, <laughs> but I swear, there's a there's a point here where there are like, was it like five ten minute long songs in a row well, or here, something like I, that? I wrote this down i wrote this down as i'm as i was listening to this album there's a, there's a pattern there's like a tool by numbers start very slow add lyrics some difficult rhythms <laughs> stay quiet now wait tease an explosion don't get there then a long section with lots of sustained notes on the guitar then with two minutes to go the big release and there's that's three, the science of tool. There wow. are on this album. There are <laughs> the t- three or the four. Algorithm. There are there are at least three or four oh, tracks God. that follow that to the T. And um, I'm not saying they did that intentionally. It's the way they're writing, and it's what separates. Jeff had mentioned much earlier in the show this comparison between Tool and King Crimson, and certainly there are lots of similarities. Uh, and and he mentioned the one difference, and I think it's nowhere more evident than on this album is that. King Crimson doesn't waste your time, and and it makes sure to do something interesting even on the tracks that they end up spacing out to 15 minutes or 18 minutes or whatever right. it might be. And I can't say the same thing about these 12 and 13 and 14-minute tracks on Fear Inoculum. Uh, it's not to say there's not good parts or good songs. I think Invincible is pretty darn good. Real thick groove on that track. I think uh Tempest or however you want to say that, you know, seven yeah, Tempest. Tempest. Mm-hmm. Um, Tempest. That's that's fifteen minutes long, but I think it earns it. There's a lot of interesting yeah. things. It's a pattern breaker too. It's the one that doesn't start out with three minutes of sort of dirge before they, 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 they do something next. Breaking. It starts very hot right away and it's Adam Jones really riffing all over the place. Tempest is a great song.
but there's just too much on Fear Inoculum that, that follows the template that I laid out. It doesn't mean it's not nice to listen to, but it doesn't really give me anything new or different or say something that, that makes me want to grab this album. No, Noam just worked in a line there that I need to spotlight because it's the funniest thing I've ever heard. We have right. to call it the tool rhythm. Oh, the tool rhythm, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's what it is, isn't it? I mean, I, I, <laughs> I think, you know, to your point, Scott, I, I think of a song like Lark's Tongues in Aspect Part 1 which is the thing that opens that album by King Crimson. And this is the weirdest thing. I remember when we did that episode, I was like, Scott's going to hate this. It's just like, because it's so avant-garde and so bizarre. Uh, that's and Again, that's my one of my favorite songs of all time uh, because it, for 15 minutes, it never gets boring. It's always riveting and bizarre and haunting and strange. And there's no repetition. And repetition is death for some of these things, especially mm -hmm. when you're working in repetitive patterns like the way hardcore music often does. And yeah, the, the tool rhythm is, is the Achilles heel of this album. And I think maybe to do that. Has been, uh, has been of the, of the band ever since, you know, probably you know, it was, was quickly being noticeable as, as early as lateralis. Yeah. I mean, it, there, there, again, I, I see value in repetition, but it's it, not for repetition's sake. You know, there's another band, Opeth. Uh, uh, oh yeah, oh, as I and, said, I'm well aware of all these 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 and little groups. The thing Opeth will do was a any other band will do like eight bar, right? We'll repeat something for eight bars, and they'll repeat it for twenty four bars. Like yeah, they'll do three, <laughs> three whole cycles of that. But it and they make it work. But they're also a band. Every song of theirs is like thirteen minutes long. And, and it's also it very like, clearly music to be stoned to. Let's and be half honest, of it is like okay. angelic singing, and half is like. Brr. Right. And it's the same guy doing it. It's it, but you, you need to you need to be a person who's into that stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. It's not exactly an album that I can like just give to somebody and be like, hey, check this out while you're jogging. I often wonder what <laughs> would happen if I had encountered all of this music when I was a little bit younger. Right. Or if I'd been born a little bit later in life. Because, yeah, that whole thing is, is obviously a trip I am very much into. But at this point, you know, I'm, a, I'm kind of I've got a little bit of the Barry Gordy in me. You know, don't bore us. Get to the chorus <laughs> or get to the weird avant garde point. You know, it doesn't have to be a chorus. See, I feel uh, like I could have been three years now. older. Yeah, right. I think I, I think I might have been uh, like three years too young. I, I it took me years to get back around to stuff like Alice in Chains, Soundgarden. Yeah. They were just all slightly that. like it was like, you know, my friend's older brother who was like, you know, in sixth grade when we were in third grade, he liked all of that stuff. And we were like, ew. I mean, Scott, I think that kind of wraps up unless we have any final thoughts well, on this. In... The, the, the thing is, the weird thing is like it's 2022. Tool hasn't released now. And I obviously just assume it could be another 13 years. I say, yeah. Well, like I said, they put out a single in 2022. They, the, re, the redone version right. of OPA, in, in which 20, you can go listen to. In it. 2040, we can reconvene and talk about the next album. That's, <laughs> the, we'll the, set the, the date right now. It will, it will be, you know, like they keep asking us to do like Political Beats episode, a follow-up on like all the artists we've covered who've released albums since we've done this show. And, you know, we're waiting until 2040 you, to record that show because we want to get Tool in there. You need a, a user poll. What's going to have a weirder name? Elon Musk's next kid or <laughs> Tool's next album? I like that. Uh, all right. I guess we've come... to press the mute button on my microphone because I was laughing like a praying jackass. That's amazing. We've, uh, we've come to the part of the show where we uh, now present to you, all three of us, uh, the two albums from Tool that you must own, the five songs that you should hear 
And we turn it over to our guest on this program for his list first, the two albums, the five songs. Noam Bloom, please give us what you think. Okay, so the two albums. I mean, there is a, a, there's. A, it's hard to uh, escape uh, naming uh, uh, Anima and uh, uh, Lateralis because to me that is the apotheosis of Tool. Those two albums together uh, bring like the tail end of the old Tool into the sort of the steps of going into the beyond where uh, you people are kind of kind of fall off a little bit. Uh, so those two are, if you're gonna, if you just want like a truncated experience with them, I think those two albums will give it to you. Truncated being a really weird word to use with regards to Tool. Uh, but if we want to get into the songs, my songs are uh, as follows. Uh, number one is Bottom uh, from Undertow. Uh, just a, 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 a strong song. And as I spoke about before, uh, uh, Rollins' uh, appearance, always uh, welcome. Uh, no Quarter from Salvo, which we discussed. Uh, uh, just an amazing cover of, uh, of uh, Led Zeppelin. Uh, 46 and 2 from Enema. Uh, just a an amazing... Uh, it, it, it doesn't do all of the things that we now spoke about their later things not doing. It, it's never boring. It always keeps you interested. It has this whole kind of arc to it. Uh, and it's just an, an engrossing song. Uh, number four, Lateralis, off of Lateralis, as we said, Fibonacci sequence and, and all of that. Watch, there's a YouTube video. You should go search YouTube for Lateralis in the Fibonacci sequence. And right in two, off of 10,000 Days, again, a, a song about how humans are dumb apes that hit each other with sticks <laughs> and why that's bad. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah, uh, that's it. My choices uh, are the exact two uh, same albums, Enema and Lateralis, are, are the two I would recommend. And then for the songs, uh, I think Eulogy and Push It uh, are on my list. Uh, Parabola, and you can even throw on the, uh, the song before it, uh, play them together. And uh, The Pot, that's four, right? Yeah, that's four. And Tempest from the last album. Again, there's not, that mm -hmm. album is not without good moments, and Tempest, I think, is the best of them. Uh, that's on my list of five. Jeff, over to you. All right. Well, I think I'm going to obviously have to pick Enema as one of the two, and I'm going to be a, a weird guy and say, is it, again, is it Salivo or is it Saliva? 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 I, like, I, I thought it was related to, to Saliva, to me spitting on you. Uh, you know, I spit on my fans by giving them 80-minute albums every single time. <laughs> uh, but I really actually do like that for a little odds and sods record. It's, it's, it, it, it attempts to be a cohesive statement. It works well. The live cuts are great reinterpretations of the songs that are different from the originals and it has no quarter on it which i just said is making my final five which are as follows i'm going to say one from the opadp part of me it's early early tool but i think it's got yeah got a good hardcore riff it's kind of like you know uh, them at their most allison chains in some ways i really love the riffing on that i guess sober uh, from Undertow. You have to talk about that, if only because everyone loves the Meat Puppet video, if only once. Watch that once, not twice, once. <laughs> um, from Enema, if you're going to pick any one song, it would be Push It. Uh, that's, there's a lot of great music on that, and I think uh, Eulogy almost competed here, but I had to go with five. Push It is, is my favorite Tool song of all time. I think it is certainly the, my favorite one that they ever wrote by themselves. Because it's just this beautifully constructed piece that goes in and out of places and spaces without ever boring you. And it also carries off its its lyrical conceit with dignity. 
of course, it would be my favorite if it weren't for that damn quarter, that no quarter cover. I it just it's a joke that I didn't really know this until we did this show. This is such a good one. I already talked about why I love it so much. I'm gonna add, end with my fifth, and of course, because I'm a cheater and I'm the host, I get to cheat. It's obviously a two part. It's Parable and Parabola. It is the the two parter from Lateralis, which is really the centerpiece of the record. The whole thing. It's the hinge point. 13 minutes of Tool at their longest and most sort of, you know, proggly, metally self-indulgent. But I think it's a beautiful song with, again, I think also a pretty decent message to, you know, encoded inside it. That is the Political Beats look at the work and career of Tool. And we hope we do a good enough job that we don't get the backlash from the passionate, passionate fan base. Uh, we hope uh, we hope you approve of our guests. We, we certainly do. He is Chief Technology Officer at you Tablet. You sound defensive, Scott. <laughs> well, I was, the, I was the most harsh, so I'm going to get the most blowback, if anybody. Yeah. Uh, no, Chief... they're going to go for me because I got the bigger account. <laughs> That's the way it always works. I'm getting the flat, Scott. Chief Technology Officer at I Tablet. I take it for you, man. Come on. Also <laughs> co-host of the Ambitious Crossover Attempt Podcast. And of all crossed out on the call-in app, both of which deal with pop culture, media, and politics, at Neon Taster at Twitter. Noam Bloom. Noam, thanks for joining us here on the program. Thanks so much, guys. This was great. This uh, was great. Thank you so much. Yes. Mm-hmm. We have a lot to look forward to uh, uh, this coming year, Twenty our first, first full episode of 2023. And I gave only one instruction to Scott, and I have no idea whether he's actually going to honor it, folks. I said, for February, give me an artist that I don't have to study, that I already know a lot about. So inevitably we're going to be doing like the Pet Shop Boys or something like that. <laughs> I, as soon as we're done mixing this one, my next uh, assignment is to find that band that you know so well. And I'll work on that. At Esoteric CD on Twitter, my name is Scott Bertram, at Scott Bertram. Don't forget patreon.com slash political beats. Help us support the show. Entry-level, mid-level, and best friend, upper-level quadrants. They're not quadrants. There's only three of them. Uh, But you can pick your level over at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Also, subscribe to new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or elsewhere. Nationalreview.com. Click on podcasts. Find all the fine offerings there. We're on Facebook, on Twitter, at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.